0: and turn with us to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be in chapters 33 and 34 this morning. I really like training arcs. It's this subgenre of a movie or a book or a show where where the protagonist starts to really level up quickly. He was recently crushed in some kind of conflict, or he has a particular goal in mind. For whatever reason, it's, it's so satisfying to me, maybe because real life is, is really a bit of a grind. It takes a long time to get the things that you want. But he, he goes to the gym, he goes to the desert, you know, punches some rocks or whatever, and, and, and the point is that he needs to get stronger to face down some kind of enemy. He pulls up at the next thing, it's usually some kind of fight, and he's really he's pumped up. He's confident. He's so much stronger than he used to be, so much faster. He walks into the room, and then there's that eerie sensation that something is wrong. The door slams shut behind him. The lights dim. The, the melody starts to sound a little darker. The boss music starts. And you can almost feel that crushing sensation as he realizes his enemy is way stronger than he thought. He's way out of his depth. What, what do you think it would be like to stand in the presence of God? Would you feel that weight, that sense of inferiority, the knowledge that he could end your life in a moment? And how's that different than if we were to, say, step into a church building, open our Bible, go to God in prayer? All of these things are in some way associated with the presence of God, but why do we feel different in those moments than if we were laid bare before the judgment seat of God? Should we feel different? I think our passage this morning addresses this topic. There's there's weight, there's importance, significance. There's fearfulness, there's awe, there's danger in the presence of God. But there's also glory and joy. How do these things go together? My hope this morning is that we'll see that that there is weight to God's presence, and we'll respond how he wants us to respond. Follow along with me in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. God has decided to reject his covenant people. And this is interesting because coming out of chapter 32, you might have thought the conflict is over. Moses has stepped in on behalf of the people. He's pleaded with God not to destroy them. But while there's some relief at the end of chapter 32, there's no real restoration. The negative is gone. God will no longer actively pour out his wrath on his people. But the positive is, has not been brought back. The covenant has been broken. And even though the Israelites are allowed to continue living, they're functionally no different than the rest of the nations. We get this vividly in the first few verses of chapter 33. Uh, two, two initial observations that I have. First, notice the language that God uses in verse 1. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. He's, he's disassociating himself from them. These aren't my people anymore, Moses. They're yours. You could picture a, a rebellious son storming off and hearing one of his parents say, you can handle him, he's, he's your son. No, no comment on if that's based on personal experience. Ironically, <laughs> Sarah's dog is the only one that pees on the carpet. My dog would never do something like that. <laughs> we, we only have one dog. Second observation, notice the, the repetition of the words, I will. To your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the other nations. And at first glance, this, this seems like everything is back to normal. The people will continue on towards the promised land, God will fight on their behalf. But then you get to verse three go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. So, wh- why does this matter? Why is God's presence such a big deal to the point that the people mourn? It's because the the removal and the restoration of God's presence is at the heart of the biblical narrative. The whole Bible, it, it drives the story of Scripture forward. God created man to walk with him, to live with him, to speak with him face to face. After the fall in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are driven out of God's perfect garden into what probably was just Eden, and then Genesis 4.16 tells us that Cain, after receiving the judgment of God, went away from the presence of God and settled east of Eden. Generation after generation sees mankind moving further and further away from God, even through his intervention. It's It's this pattern throughout human history that shows us that we have a natural inclination towards evil, slavery, exodus, wilderness, Promised land, oppression, deliverance, idolatry, reform, exile. That's, that's what the phrase stiff necked people refers to. Our, our sinful hearts are determined to see us dragged away from God in a river of deceit. The Israelites might make it to the promised land, they might displace the foreign powers, they might set up their own civilization, they might finally be free from the oppression after 400 years of slavery. They might live in abundance. They might be in a land flowing with milk and honey. But they'll be dead in their sin, cast away from the presence of God, rejected, covenant broken, wandering aimlessly until God visits their sin upon them. And I think, I think we're supposed to feel this, this tension here After all, Exodus is about deliverance. It's this story about liberation by supernatural acts of judgment. Thunder, lightning, smoke, fire from heaven as God literally descends on the mountain and promises to live among his people in a tent. This is the same God who split the Red Sea, who struck down every firstborn of Egypt in a single night. He's going to live right there. In the middle of the camp, he's going to make a holy place. It's going to create a holy people. It's going to expand his glory into all the earth until the beauty and perfection of creation is restored, until humanity finally receives rest for their toil. But not anymore. I think that's why Moses organized the book the way he did, why, why the chapters dictating the tabernacle are separated from the actual building of the tabernacle. And these chapters are right here in the middle. There's, there's gonna be no tabernacle because God's not gonna dwell with his people. There's gonna be no ark to represent the throne of God, no, no lampstand to radiate the glory of God, no bread of divine presence, no priesthood, no altar for sacrifice, no, no people of God, it's over. So it's no, it's no wonder the people mourn. You know, they, they put off their ornaments, probably their jewelry, and it's, it's an act of humility. They're, what they once took off in sin, they're now taking off as a sign of their repentance. And, and for them, the truth is sinking in. These, these stiff-necked people with their hard hearts are enamored with what God does for them rather than God Himself. We're thirsty. God must have abandoned us. We're hungry. It would have been better if we died in Egypt. Are we really that different from the Israelites? How are, how are you tempted to want the things of God without God Himself, without the presence of God? We we follow Him because maybe He gives us victory over life's circumstances. We follow God because he can heal sickness, he can provide for us, he can comfort us in sorrow, he can, he can surround us with community. And these are all good things, these are all true things, but they're not the goal. We think that happiness is the prize, or heaven is the prize, or eternal life is the prize. No, friends, God himself is the prize. Eternal life is knowing God forever, dwelling with God forever, praising God forever, and being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, radiating his glory forever. God's blessing cannot be separated from his presence. Those, those things go together. If we want God's blessing, if we want his care, his provision, his joy, his peace, his comfort, what we really need is his presence, God himself. And one, one thing this passage does so well is to help us feel the weightiness of God's presence. It's, it's not a small thing that the transcendent God of the universe, perfect in power, holy, righteous, infinite, would dwell with us. Right here, right now, where two or three are gathered in his name. That's a, that's a glorious reality. That's something to be praised. But it's also a sobering reality. It's something we shouldn't be taking lightly. I'm not saying we shouldn't you know, ask and pray that God's presence fills us or that his spirit be in our midst, but what we need to understand is, is what it is we're asking. Friends, we're asking for the presence of the infinite God. Without the blood of Christ, shed on our behalf, he would would consume us in an instant. But God is merciful. His mercy is more than our sin. We see a picture of it even in this passage. He says in verses three and five, that's exactly why he can't go with them. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. That's the will of God in withholding punishment from them, staying his hand of judgment. But that's just, that's just mercy that equals our sin. His mercy is more. It's infinitely deep. So he provides a solution, a mediator, a way from them to be restored back to his presence. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it All the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. So at first glance, even when I was studying it, this section feels a little bit out of place. You know, you could put some parentheses around it, drop it in a footnote, why is it there? Well, I think it provides context for what's coming and and it gives a helpful comparison for how it is that God interacts with his people. Notice that the tent of meeting is outside the camp. That phrase is used a couple of times. It's, It's far off from the camp compared to the tabernacle, which was to be built right in the middle of their community. It's also temporary. You know, it was probably either Moses' personal tent or just some other tent that he would take outside whenever he needed to speak with God. Instead of the people participating in worship, bringing sacrifices, bringing offerings, they just just watch from their tent. They're not allowed anywhere near. Instead of the entire Levitical priesthood guarding and serving in the tabernacle, it's just one guy, Joshua. I've heard some people use verse 11 as as an encouragement, you know, to be spending more time with God, and I think if you took it outside the passage, you could probably come up with something like, when Joshua was young, he wanted to be near where God spoke, he wanted to stay there for a while, and that's probably why he became such a faithful man of God and a leader. I'll, I'll rate that interpretation a, a maybe. I think think the opposite's happening here based on the context. Rather than emphasizing Joshua being in the presence of God, he's actually emphasizing Joshua preventing other people from coming to the presence of God. He's guarding the tent. No one's allowed to come near. It's pretty clear God wants nothing to do with this people. He pretty much only wants to speak with and interact with Moses. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We'll pause here for a second. Moses is beginning his intercession, and we'll kind of step through this section with its back and forths helpful for me when I see long dialogue sections in scripture to, to do this slowly so I can figure out the argument. Moses starts by speaking God's word back to him. You said, bring up this people. I don't know who's going with me. I think he's, he's probably talking about the Israelites here. He's not talking about the angel. He's not talking about someone else to help him lead. I think what he's saying is these people don't have an identity anymore. If they're not your people, whose people are they? Then he uses God's words again, he said, you know, you said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. So Moses, his concern isn't for himself. He's not thinking about himself, his leadership. His identity is secure in God's sight. He's concerned about the people who haven't found favor in God's sight. People with no identity. Is this not the nature of intercession? what it is? Is it not one who is favorable, arguing, speaking for, on behalf of one who is unfavorable? Moses didn't participate in the, the golden calf incident. He probably has his own flaws, but somehow now he, founds, he finds favor in God's sight. It's probably by God's grace and God's own revelation, But but he doesn't keep that all for himself. He doesn't you know, he doesn't hold it for himself. He wants to extend this favor to the rest of the people. He's he's cashing in all his chips. He says, Look, you know, you said I've found favor in your sight. If that's true, prove it. Show me your ways. Prove that you are who you say you are. Prove that you're gracious and merciful. This nation is your people, after all. And this is where it gets interesting in verse 14. God says, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. A quick, a quick look in the Hebrew makes, makes this tension almost explode with this response. God isn't talking about everybody here. He's actually addressing Moses directly. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. That's, that's second person singular for you grammar nerds. It seems simple, but. It was at this point when I was studying, I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Moses is trying to talk God into accepting him and the people, not just him. If your presence doesn't come with us, there's no point in us going. Look at verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Again, he's using his, his own favor on behalf of the people. Is it not... And you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Branch church, I think this is where our identity should come from. Yes, God's presence is weighty, but it also provides the basis for our identity because of what Christ has done for us. God's church is not characterized by its size, its music. It's events, it's preaching, it's popularity, childcare, whatever. Our identity comes from the fact that God dwells with us by the merits of another. Our identity comes from the fact that God has has stamped his name on us. We are his. Because Jesus Christ has found favor in his sight. Moses, his intercession didn't last forever. It lasted maybe a couple chapters. You could stretch it maybe to the book of Numbers when, when stuff starts to really go wrong. But his weakness points us to a greater mediator. Moses was just a guy. He wasn't even able to look at God lest he die. But that points us to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. When we look to Jesus, we we see God in all of his grace, and mercy because Jesus took our sins on himself. He bore the wrath of God on the cross and offers us his merit, his favor in the sight of God. And we can enter into God's presence without fear. If you hear here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we put our hope in, that we sing about, that we celebrate every week. We, who are sinners, who are rebellious in the sight of God, who are idolaters, who are condemned to spend an eternity away from the presence of God, we can boldly approach him for grace because Jesus died and was raised for us. We can dwell with God for eternity where heaven and earth meet, where we will live and work, eat and laugh without pain, without sorrow, without death, without disappointment or sin, or sickness? What does he require of us? Turn from our sin. Trust in the merit of Jesus alone. Jesus who mediated for us, who interceded on behalf of God so that he could extend his favor to us. Don't leave without, without considering the significance of placing your faith in Jesus. It'll be too late on the last day when you're, when you're standing before God and there's no one to bear your sin. You'll, you'll take the wrath of God on yourself. You'll feel the full weight of God's presence. Through Moses' work in a smaller way, God does extend the same favor to the Israelite people. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The the passage continues. God tells Moses to go back up to the mountain with new stone tablets, just like the ones that broke. And just like the tent of meeting, nobody is allowed to come near. Look at at chapter 34, verse three. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. This this is a big deal. God's going to establish a covenant again with his people. That's that's how you know that his presence is gonna be restored to them. Before we get there, I wanna point out one more thing for us to think about in verse, verses six through nine. In verse six, God, he's providing probably the most important and significant revelation of himself so far in scripture. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's generation to the third and fourth, children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses' response in verse 9, I think, summarizes this whole section for us. He asks three things If I've found favor in your sight, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. One of I think the most beautiful things about the gospel is that it's multifaceted. You can approach it from from different angles. You can see the glory of God on display in the ways that Christ mediates for us or in the ways that God forgives sins or restores his presence. But I love reminders that the gospel isn't just about our forgiveness. It's not just about our escape from hell. Every part of the gospel goes together. You can't have the dwelling of God without forgiveness of sin. The holiness of God would would consume us in our sin without Christ taking that on himself and clothing us in his righteousness. In the same way, you can't have pardon from sin or God's presence unless God takes us as his inheritance. Literally, unless he takes possession of us. You can't have the blessing of God without being set apart as his possession. And this is really deep, covenantal language. There's a lot of love and faithfulness that goes into this, and its string runs all throughout Scripture. God doesn't just rescue his people from Egyptian captivity and then let them run free. They become his possession, his inheritance. And this is an aspect of the gospel that that we can't lose. The people us, have a new king, a new master, a new lord. God's presence is is weighty. It demands mediation, but it also requires responsibility from us, his people. And this is the heart of the next section where God is restoring his presence by renewing his covenant with his people. Verse 10, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. I'm not going to read the rest of the section for the sake of time. It's pretty much a summary of chapters 20 to 24. That's where God originally established the covenant with his people. I'd, I'd encourage you to go back, read through it, Listen to the sermon that Doug preached on it a couple a couple of months ago, and then start thinking critically about how the Old Testament law, Old Testament Law applies to us today. The purpose, though, of the covenant I, I think we we need to understand. There's two things. First, the covenant establishes God's people as His people, like we talked about, meaning they they don't belong to anyone else. This isn't just limited to the Old Testament covenants, it's, it's in the new covenant that Jesus established with us as well. Listen to Hebrews eight. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The, the Israelite people were given the law so that they would know how to worship God properly in the ways that he commanded. Their lives, their community, were were supposed to be filled with reminders of what God had done for them. They had rhythms of work and rest. They had commands about the ways they were to approach God in worship via sacrifice. They had reminders that their salvation and deliverance from Egypt came at a cost, blood. I don't think these commands translate directly to us because they find their fulfillment in Christ, but, but the principle is right here. God demands our obedience. We have a responsibility to live in a way that represents and reflects his character. He calls us to fight sin, to love one another, to gather as his people in worship, to preach the gospel, to trust him in difficulty, to give thanks in all circumstances. These these things that we do don't earn God's favor, but that doesn't make them any less significant. That doesn't make them less important. In fact, what they display is that God has looked favorably on us despite our sin. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And it displays our love for him as his covenant people. The second purpose of the covenant, and and by extension, the purpose of our obedience, the things that we do for God, is to radiate the glory and goodness of God to the world. Remember that back in chapter 33, verse 16, Moses said, we show we've found God's favor as he makes us distinct from every other people in the world. We who have been saved should look more like Christ than we do the world. We, we, we forgive like God has forgiven us. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We reject the idols of this world. We, we find satisfaction in God alone. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross and follow him. All of these things are possible because of what God has done for us. Look at chapter 34, verse 10 again. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It's a beautiful picture. It's it's the supernatural work of God to turn rebellious people into God-fearing worshipers. Jesus mediates the presence of God so that his glory will be on display for the nations. God God's presence radiates his glory. The chapter finishes with an illustration that I think shows that truth. The covenant exists to radiate God's glory to the world. Follow along in chapter 34 verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all, the Lord, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face, until he went in to speak with him again. I think this is a really good display of true restoration, a good summary of the things that have happened so far. God's presence removed because of the Israelite's sin, mediated by the intercession of Moses, restored via God's covenant to us, and now put on display because of God's divine mediator. He didn't just intercede, on behalf of the people, God didn't just renew his covenant with his people. He now shows that he is with his people by displaying his presence through Moses' face. Something interesting I learned when I was studying these chapters is that the Hebrew word for face is the same word used to describe God's presence in, verse, uh, in chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. Those, those words show up 23 times in these two chapters, like, like this little thread that hangs it all together. And what we find right here at the climax of the narrative is that what Moses did is incomplete, temporary, a shadow of something that was to come. God's face was veiled to Moses. I have to cover you with my hand. You can only hear about the things that describe me. Moses' face veiled to the people. In all of this, God's people are, fully, are unable to fully experience the presence of God. What about for us, who have access to God through Jesus Christ? In 2 Corinthians, which was read for us earlier, Paul, he latches on to this imagery that's used in Exodus 34. It says, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? His point in this chapter is that we who are in Christ are to have confidence, boldness in our relationship with God and with other people. If the law, even though it's passing away, shown the glory and presence of God in Moses' face, how much more will the grace of God be on display in the face of Jesus? For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? For us who are Christians, we have confidence, we have boldness in the presence of God, and we have, we have a responsibility to display that same glory and light to the rest of the world. God's face is no longer veiled to us. We can approach his word with boldness. We can approach him in prayer with boldness. Likewise, the veil of God's word is no longer there for the rest of the world. We who have been bought by Christ are called as lights in the world to display and radiate God's glory to the rest of creation. Yes, the the presence of God is a weighty thing and it shouldn't be taken lightly, but but it should point us to rejoicing in Christ. He has made dwelling with God possible. And because of what Christ has done, it should give us confidence. We can go to God in prayer. We can gather with his people. We can proclaim the gospel to the watching world. Christ has has unveiled the glory of God, not only for us to behold, not not only for us to enjoy for eternity, but for us to shine as lights, out of darkness, to radiate the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we can, we can go to him. We can go to God in prayer, without fear, without apprehension. We can confess our sin. We can make requests to him. We know that we have direct access to him through Jesus Christ. Likewise, we can go to our friends, our neighbors with the gospel because it is the light of the glory of Christ, the only hope for dying souls. My prayer is that, that this church right here in Corvallis would be a light for the gospel in this city, that, that your love for one another, your worship, your obedience to God's word would radiate the presence of God. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness so that we would be his people, his treasured possession for eternity. And he wants other people to join in that as well. So, with one voice, we'll sing to the Lord. And with one heart, we'll live out his word. Till the whole earth sees, the Redeemer has come. For he dwells in the presence of his people. Let's pray. God, God we praise you that your presence is difficult to behold. We confess that without Christ shedding his blood for us, without clothing us in righteousness, we deserve the full extent of your wrath. And yet we praise you that you have displayed your glory, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your steadfast love to us by sending him to die for us, to become sin, for us we praise you that Christ in his mediation has unveiled the glory of God to us we can look in scripture and see the things that you have done we can behold your presence as we gather with your people and, and you have unveiled us who are meant to be lights be images of God to the rest of the world help us even this week as we go out to reflect that same glory to the rest of the world. Amen.